please remain standing and pray with me. Holy Spirit of God, come now. And Lord, even as uh, Moses prayed, I would that all, all God's people would prophesy. Lord, send that spirit of the openness to your word upon your people this morning so that we can go out of this place declaring your praises and your truth. Lord, be with me and give me utterance this morning. Grant me clarity of thought, clarity of speech, the ability to, com to communicate well. Lord, all of that comes from you. Most of all, Lord, I pray for unction from the Holy Spirit to be poured out upon the preaching of your word. And Lord, we will be sure to give you the praise and the honor and the glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Lots of, uh, lots of beautiful, great readings this morning uh, from the scriptures. We had the wonderful Numbers passage where Moses, you know, the 70 elders get a, a portion of God's spirit and there are people prophesying in the camp and somebody says, goes and rats them out, tells Moses what's going on. And they, Moses says, I wish everybody, the Lord will put his spirit on everybody. And they would prophesy, which is exactly what happened in, uh, on the day of Pentecost. That would be a great passage to preach about. Or then there's that great passage from James where we heard Libby read it so well to us this morning. Of, uh, brother, don't, ju don't judge one another. Don't judge one another. What a good word for us to hear this morning. And those are wonderful, wonderful things to talk about. But today I'm going to talk about sin and hell. So, <laughs> no, Seriously, today as we turn to uh, the, Mark's, uh, the passage in Mark, God, the gospel according to St. Mark, uh, we hear some of the most disturbing things that Jesus ever had to say. Uh, they're found right there in that passage, Mark chapter 9, verses 38 through 48. And from this passage this morning, what we're going to do, our project will be to focus on two critical teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ that to many of us in this place as contemporary hearers seem unreal at best, or downright immoral at worst. Some of the, what we're hearing from Jesus this, uh, this morning, to many people, sounds unreal at best and downright immoral at worst. And those two topics of, the, of our focus, again, are the seriousness of sin and the reality of hell, the seriousness of sin and the reality of hell. It is important to note that Jesus spoke more about hell than anyone else in the New Testament. That's right, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, is the one that tells us about hell the most in the New Testament. So the first thing that the, the Lord Jesus Christ tells us is that he is deadly serious about sin and about those who call the, what he calls the micron, the little ones, to sin or to stumble. He is serious about sin and about those who calls little ones to stumble. So it says in verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Now, we need to break that passage down a little bit and really pick apart this text to see what Jesus is saying. The English Standard Version that we often use here at Christ Church uh, offers what I think is less than an optimal translation of that passage when it uses uh, the phrase causes to sin, when it, in, when it um, addresses uh, the one who causes someone to sin, a little one to sin, or when it refers back to us again and where it's reflexive, if your hand causes you to sin. That word to sin is actually the Greek word scandalon, or it is a, 
It is a derivation. The scandalon is actually a noun, but it's the verb form of that term. And as many of us have probably read or heard, scandalon doesn't mean sin since, uh, in the sense of breaking a rule. Rather, as a noun, it has two main meanings. Okay, this term scandalon. Are you ready? The first meaning is this. It's, it's a wooden stick that acts as the bait trigger in a trap to catch animals. Now, if you had a, not just the Boy Scout handbook, but if you had the Boy Scout field book, like I did, it showed you how to make a trap just like that. It's a deadfall trap, and you basically make a figure, figure four, and then the, the, the part that comes out that's the, the line, the, the horizontal line on a four, at the end of that, you put your bait, and then you balance a big rock on top of that figure four, and when the animal comes to pull that bait off, the rock squashes them. And then you can eat it. See, that's how that works. So it's a bait trigger. Uh, it's, it's like, um, well, think about that you're, if you have a mouse trap at home. Uh, this time of year, especially when we lived out in the country, it, the, the mice knew that fall was coming, and so the best place to go is your house. We're coming out of the fields and getting in your house. Well, uh, if you've ever had a mouse trap, you know that little piece where you put the, the cheese or maybe peanut butter or whatever you use as bait. That little piece is the scandalon. It's the bait trigger. Now, the second meaning of this word, and this is the one we're most familiar with, is a stumbling block. So a scandalon is a stumbling block. Uh, so the verb form would be someone, something that causes you to stumble, someone who is causing you to stumble, or a, an event that causes you to fall down. So here's the point in verse 42. Jesus is speaking of, listen, someone baiting and ensnaring baiting and ensnaring and trapping someone in a sin or placing a stumbling block in someone's way with the intention of causing them to fall into sin. Jesus says if someone does such a thing, it would be a better fate that they, if they had a boulder tied around their neck and they were thrown into the ocean. Now, the little ones he's concerned about here, he says, causing one of these little ones who believe in me to sin or to stumble or to be ensnared, he's, that, those little ones can be both children or new followers of Jesus Christ. I've actually seen this, um, unfortunately, worked out in both situations. It could be children, literal children, or new followers, new believers, basically baby Christians, anyone who would cause a baby Christian to stumble. Now, this kind of baiting to sin takes many forms. But we have seen one writ large in the news lately. And I want to use this as an example, not as, uh, not as events to bludgeon any particular group with, but it is the perfect example, unfortunately, of the text we just read. Because when I read this passage this week, I could not help but think about the over 1,000, over 1,000 just in Pennsylvania, 1,000 clergy sex abuse cases that have come to light through a Pennsylvania grand jury investigation. Now, we're often told that the clergy from this particular branch of the Christian family who are committing these acts of sexual molestation are pedophiles, but that is simply not true. In, in reality, the vast majority of the over 1,000 abuse cases from Pennsylvania have to do with male clergy grooming and enticing boys who have reached the age of puberty. So this is basically, this is technically called a phobophilia, not pedophilia. 
Now, you can come to your own conclusions as to why the news media will not accurately report that. But the point here is that the descriptions are just exactly what Jesus is referring to here, essentially baiting a trap to ensnare these young people into sin. So there is the sense of the scandalon. That means to entice, to tempt with the objective of catching someone, of trapping someone in a sin. But the second sense of the word is at work here in this example as well. Remember, it refers to a stumbling block, and this illustrates what we're talking about. Someone that causes a person to fall or even to fall away from faith. And that has unfortunately, I hope you're listening, that has unfortunately happened. Who knows, I've heard anecdotes, but who knows how many once faithful people have fallen away from Jesus because the behavior of those who represent Jesus at his altar every Sunday have through their actions put a lie to everything they preach and represent. And many of the faithful or those considering faith in Jesus Christ, not just in this part of the Christian family, but the shockwaves have reached far beyond that denomination into all denominations as well, throw up their hands in disgust and say, it was all a sham, it was all a lie. Even those who preach show that they don't believe by what they do in their lives. Now, let me ask you something and bring this around to the text again. Let me ask you something. When you hear about these cases and the devastation to the lives of families and the destruction of people's faith, is your response, when you hear about this, is your visceral response, visceral response to say, well, we should just forgive these priests who have abused the, the trust of their parishioners. We should just let bygones be bygones. No, everything within us does not want to react that way. In fact, to react such, in such a facile way means that we don't really care about the victims. We don't really care about, gen, about the, the impact of genuine, systemic, generational evil. We don't really care about justice. No, instead, when we hear about this, we want God to do something. In fact, people have said, why didn't God stop it? You see, we know it's not right, and we have a visceral reaction to it. The universe itself cries out for justice in such a case. A God that would be indifferent to this kind of victimization would not be a loving God. A loving God would be angry with that kind of harm. The good news is that Jesus says he hates this kind of thing and he promises ultimate justice for the victims. Rebecca Pippert says, anger isn't the opposite of love. Listen, anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is, and the final form of hate is indifference. The final form of hate is indifference. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer of sin, which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. But Jesus doesn't just let us focus our attention to the seriousness or uh, towards the seriousness of sin that's out there. That's comfortable sin almost. You know, it's not in here, it's out there. 
He doesn't let us stay focused on the sin that is done by others. Instead, he shifts the view inward to ourselves. Jesus gets direct and personal here in verse 43 and following. Listen to what our Lord says. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of heaven with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, again, a better translation of this passage, and let's just do that first verse there, for first, uh, verse 43. If your hand, listen, if your hand entices you to sin and causes you to stumble. If your hand entices you to sin and causes you to stumble, cut it off. Jesus says, in other words, that there are parts of my life, parts of your life, that are as natural to us and as important to us as hands and feet and feet, feet, feet and eyes. As natural, there is nothing more natural than my hand to me. Nothing more natural than my vision to me. There are things that are natural to me. Feet and eyes, hands, that if they are left intact, these important and natural things in our life will destroy us in this life and beyond this life. And our Lord warns us that this is so deadly, so dangerous, that we should take drastic measures to end the enticement that would draw us away from the love of God. And he uses the most raw and exaggerated imagery that he can to make his point. Because he's not really talking about self-mutilation, is he? I don't see a lot of one-handed, one-eyed Christians because of this passage. Thanks be to God. See, we're not fundamentalists. He's not talking about self-mutilation. He's talking about self-mastery self-mastery. You see, we may think that our use of pornography, and by the way, uh, for women under 25, this is an increasingly difficult problem that is making itself more and more prevalent among women, not just among men. We have an idea that this is a male problem. No, it's a female problem as well. We may think that our use of pornography does not hurt anyone, but Jesus says, cut it off. If your access to porn is streaming online, then cut the cable. Smash the smartphone. Eliminate your unsupervised access to the computer. That sounds drastic, but it's better to lose your iPhone. It's better to lose an iPhone than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Or we may think that our petty thieving from our employer is only right because we should be getting better pay. Cut it off. Amputate it. Confess to your employer. Make restitution. Accept the consequences. Better to get fired than to get fired. <laughs> or we may think that our constant hunger to acquire more and more stuff isn't greed, really, but just getting the good things of life that I've earned. 
Jesus says, cut it off, sell all that you have, give to the poor. There are, sno there are no storage rooms in hell. Or we may think that our willingness to lie because of our that our political ideology is so important and that it basically assumes that the ends justify the means. It's okay to live a life that is inherently deceptive. You should leave public office. Having public office is not worth losing your soul over. Or we perhaps think that our outbursts of anger and our vile language on social media doesn't really matter because we believe the illusion that the people on the other end of social media aren't real people. <laughs> Seriously, we would never talk to anybody like that. If that's the case, cut it off. Amputate your participation in social media. You see, if, if we don't deal drastically, here's what will happen. Please listen to this. This is the natural progression of things. When we first sin, our conscience reacts. And if we are believers, then the Holy Spirit also convicts us. It tells us that we've sinned. You feel the Holy Spirit telling you, you should not, you should not have done that. That's wrong. It's a bad feeling. I mean, it's a feeling that makes you want to go and get right with God. And we feel, and so as soon as we feel the rebuke, the smart of God's rebuke, we should turn immediately to him. But if we do not truly repent at that point, but rather justify ourselves as in the descriptions above, then here's what happens. Then we first start to see our sinful action as not being such a big deal. It's just not a big deal. I mean, it used to be a big deal, but, you know, really when you think about it, that's no big deal. And then the second thing, and this is so important, the second thing that happens is we begin a trajectory, are you listening? A trajectory of turning away from God and turning inwards towards the self that will continue now in this life, but will continue throughout eternity. And that eternal trajectory away from God and towards the self ends in everlasting destruction and, yes, torment, which brings us to the reality of hell. Now, most secular people and even some not-so-secular people just don't think hell is real. I mean, we just, it just the, the reality of it does not lodge in our social consciousness any longer. 150 years ago, nobody, was, uh, nobody had to be convinced. Everybody, you know, most everybody believed in it. But today, most people don't think it's real. They don't think of hell as any more real than Azkaban prison. And moreover, they see the concept of hell as morally repugnant. How could a good and loving God punish someone eternally for a sin that even if it was for a lifetime was only temporary? How's that justice? How is that right? Or someone might feel like, you know, um, one of the reasons they find Christianity unbelievable is their view uh, is that their view of God is that God basically has to rule the universe by threat. You know, God is so petty. God is so trivial. He has to rule his universe by threat. Believe in me or else. Believe in me or I'll throw you into hell. God in this view is a petty, insecure despot, a tin pot, vindictive tyrant 
who responds to those who will not submit to the party line or who will not appropriately grovel at his feet with the equivalent of an everlasting gulag. Or as Tim Keller writes, most modern people inevitably think that hell works like this. All right, are you listening? God gives us time, but if we haven't made the right choices by the end of our lives, he casts our souls into hell for all eternity. As the soul fall, souls fall through space, they cry out for mercy. But God says, too late. You had your chance. Now you will suffer. And if we're honest, that's the conception that many of us live our lives with, believers and unbelievers alike. But you know, I said a minute ago that hell is a trajectory away from God that goes on for eternity. Here is the reality, and I've witnessed this as a priest. I've seen it with my own eyes. I've seen it in my life, the life of the people I love, people in my extended family, my friends. Most people, here it is, and some of you have heard me say this, and you roll your eyes. That's okay. Most people become more like themselves as they get older. Most people become more like themselves as they get older. And what I mean by that is that, please listen, we establish patterns that become more and more difficult to alter the older and older we get. And even more than that, these patterns tend to amplify. You listening? They tend to amplify for good or for ill, and they begin to take over our personalities. For instance, if there is a pattern of love for God and love for neighbor, then, and I've seen this, and it's a wonderful thing to watch, we become ever sweeter, humbler, more generous people until we become like clear vessels, clear containers, brimming over with the radiant light of God. And perhaps you know someone like that. May God make us all people like that. But if the pattern is a pattern of self-direction, a pattern of sin, even what we might deem to be petty sin, I don't know, like complaining, we eventually lose our identity, grumbling, I should say. I mean, it's the Israelites at the beginning of the Numbers passage. All we ever get is manna. Listen, folks, you are starving and God's raining food out of the sky. Yeah, but I'm bored. Can't we order out? And God said, let there be, you know, that truck that comes along to the, the, with, the, with the hot dogs and the hamburgers. If the pattern is sin, even petty sin, we eventually will lose our identity that, to that pattern, and we no longer have the power to alter it. So one writer says it like this. He says, Hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others. But you are still distinct from it, still not the same thing as the mood. You may even criticize it in yourself. I shouldn't be that way. And wish you could stop it. But there may come a day when you, no long, when you can no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood, or even to enjoy it. But just the grumble itself, going on forever like a machine. It is not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. 
And this trajectory and our rootedness in uh, that trajectory is why deathbed conversions, apart from a miracle of God's grace, just don't happen. Because people are so entrenched in their anti-God trajectory that, and I have seen this, they rage against God's claim over their life even as they gasp for their last breath. That's mostly what happens. Very rarely is there the genuine deathbed conversion. You see, it's not that God is like, cannot wait to throw people into hell and tells them that it's too late, even as they're descending into the pit and realize the error of their ways, like Scrooge at the end of that really good uh, Christmas movie, you know the one I'm talking about, the musical one with Albert Finney, you know, and he's like, he's, he falls into his grave and it turns out to be falling into hell and at some point you just say, wait a second, I was wrong. No, what happens is that we eventually, listen, lose our ability to see the error of our ways or to say that we were wrong or even to desire God enough to repent. C.S. Lewis, sorry. <laughs> I do read other things. Nobody, just, nobody says it as well as he does. There are, he says, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, it is opened. The damned are, in one sense successful rebels to the end. The doors of hell are locked on the inside. Now, in verse 48, Jesus quotes the prophet Isaiah to describe the end state of those who have locked themselves away from God, safe and sound from God. Hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. The, G, the word that Jesus uses in this text over and over for hell, we only have one word for hell, but in the Greek language there are at least two commonly used, and he uses the one that is Gehenna. Gehenna. That term refers literally to the Valley of Hinnon, which was the town garbage heap. The town, it was a valley that was used as the garbage dump for the city of Jerusalem in antiquity. It was filled with garbage and with rotting carcasses of animals, and there was a constant fire burning, and it was, as you could imagine, full of maggots. The worm never dies. So in other words, it was a place of decay and destruction. These terms, fire, decay, these terms are, are figurative terms that give us something to think about that we can catch on to, but they speak to the state of the soul in eternal torment as, it, as its never-ending rejection of God and self-devouring, self-destruction continue for eternity, to gnaw at one's own self for all eternity. Now, what Lewis is saying, and what I think what is true, is that this is the choice that people make, and it is a, becomes an unalterable choice. God does not drag us kicking and screaming into the kingdom of heaven. 
He will honor the dignity he conferred upon us when he allowed us to choose to love and follow him or to turn away from God and to turn inwardly and be dominated by our anti-God passions. And beloved, even if God did drag us into his presence as unrepentant people, if we have rejected Jesus Christ in this life, to be in God's presence would be sheer torment. You see, that, that, that terminology, fire and where the worm never dies, speaks to unending destruction, unending destruction and decay. It's the last remnants, it's the tatters of a human psyche that gnaw on itself forever and ever and ever because it, even if offered the opportunity, it would not seek the, would not seek the opportunity to relent and turn to God. I've watched people who have rejected Christ but who show up for a Sunday worship service writhe in torment throughout a whole service. I've actually seen this happen. Where they're twisting and squirming in their pew. All through the service, where they're grimacing. I don't think it's because of anything internal or because of something they're sitting on. What I've seen is this, is when the Holy Spirit comes in real power, makes a real, when he is really manifesting himself in a powerful way, and so God is present in his glory among his people in the service of worship. It is intolerable to the one who doesn't want to have anything to do with that God. It's not just uncomfortable, it's agonizing. One Eastern Orthodox view, and by the way, I don't, I don't subscribe to this view, but I think as a speculation, it speaks something truthful. One Eastern Orthodox view is that the torment of hell is to be in the glorious presence of Jesus Christ, the God the lost have rejected, to be in that presence for all eternity. But this morning, we're not there. This morning, we can still end that trajectory. This morning, the grace of God is abundantly poured out, and we have not gone so far as to slam the doors and nail them shut. This morning, the God of love is say, the God of love bars the way to hell with arms stretched wide on the hard wood of the cross and says, No farther. Don't come past me. I did this to keep that from being you. I can give you a new trajectory where you will not where you, where you, where you will not gnaw the tattered ends of your existence throughout eternity, but where you can live an ever greater life as eternity rolls, where you'll become ever more not dehumanized, but more fully human throughout all eternity, and you will share in my glory and in my delight. Please, 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 I've done everything to keep you from taking that trajectory away from me. God's grace is with us. In fact, brothers and sisters, I dare to say, based on the Psalms, even if I descend to Sheol, you are there. God's grace is even in hell. But the souls in hell will not claim it. But he is present this morning in power, in his church. And if we cry out to him, he will give us new life and new direction what do I need to amputate out of my life that stands between me and God this morning? Because he offers never-ending delight and joy. He has done, he has even died 
so that you don't have to experience an attorney separated from him. I know this is not a, it's not a popular teaching. Hmm, I can see a lot of reasons why it isn't. We have to hear it to realize that there are consequences to our actions, that God gives us the dignity of our humanity to choose to be with him or to reject him. But that is a binary choice. But in the power of the Spirit, he lies it before you this morning. By his grace, he beckons you and empowers you to receive him. Won't you do that today in faith? And say, yes, Lord Jesus, thank you that you love me so much that you went to hell and back to save somebody like me. Free me from my sin. Grant me the grace to live in life with you. And I will praise you in eternity forever. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I invite you to stand as we...